So, Mark. Yes. In the movie we're discussing this week, the lead actor plays not one, not two, but four characters. Starting a trend that will travel through his career. And only get worse in the end. But anyway, what I was wondering was, do you have a favorite movie in which one actor plays multiple characters? Well, in one of my favorite Bob's Burgers jokes, a little girl does point out that in the movie The Parrot Trap, casting Lindsay Lohan as both twins was controversial because it took jobs away from other little girls that looked like Lindsay Lohan. But I do have to say, that is a very well done two-person in one movie, even in one scene role. That is a very good answer that didn't occur to me. I mean, it's probably the first one that pops in my mind, and not even just because of that joke, but because of, you know, how seamless it is. Yeah, the accent work in that movie is very well done. We talked about this probably two years ago now, but the whole thing about how she feels, in both cases, plausibly like someone faking the opposite accent. Right. She does so many layers of accents in that movie, so it's very impressive. Um, The first thing that I thought of... I didn't, wasn't sure if it counted, but of course, Back to the Future, subject of a future two-hour episode, in which Crispin Glover and Leah Thompson play old and young versions of the same character, and I wasn't sure if that counted. I don't think that counts, because it's not a different person. Alright, so I had Robert Zemeckis on my mind then, because the next thing I thought of was the Polar Express, in which Tom Hanks plays uh, Santa Claus, and the train conductor, and that old hobo on top of the train, and he is the, like, mocap actor of the little boy. Interesting. A movie I have not seen and refuse to watch, because it is terrifying. You should keep it that way. I gave it another shot this December, and it is bad. Yeah, it's scary. It seems scary. Like, I know it's not a horror film, but isn't it, though? Um... Honestly, I don't find it scary so much as I find it, like, kind of dull narratively and to look at. I mean, it's a great Christmas book for children in that it's pretty pictures with no plot. Right. That's There's nothing happening. So the movie really struggles to feel like anything that's going on matters. And also because the characters are not characters. They have no goals or personalities. Right. The book is a little boy rides a train, sees Santa goes home. That is it. Great for a kid's book. I'm always very confused by students of mine who are like, yes, of course, the Polar Express is a Christmas classic. And I feel like that is a thing that's happened. And I I don't understand how we allowed it to happen. I have never heard anyone talk about that movie besides saying that they've never seen it, to be honest. That is surprising to me. It is getting clunkily shoehorned into the Christmas canon despite being a piece of poop. I refuse to accept it and I will not acknowledge it. I wasn't sure if you would like that, so I also thought of Lupita Nyong'o in Us, who plays two characters and is fantastic. That is very good. Also, Elizabeth Moss in Us, who plays two characters and is fantastic. And Almost every character, <laughs> every actor in the film Us. Um, I also thought of The Prestige, because it oh, is yeah. a well-done twist at the end. Ish and ish. I don't remember where we actually yeah. find that out in the movie. It's towards the end. Yeah, but it is very well done, and I think Christian Bale manages to pull it off yeah, believably. Yeah, you know what's going on, he is clearly playing two characters. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's Julia Roberts as both her character from Ocean's Eleven and as Julia Roberts in the hit film Ocean's Twelve. You know, I love the move. I love that the plot of that movie hangs on the fact that the character played by Julia Roberts looks like famous movie star Julia Roberts. It is 
a really bold choice, and I respect it, honestly. I think I first saw that movie before I, like, really knew who Julia Roberts was. Like, I knew she was a famous actress, but I, like, didn't know who she was well enough to realize the layers that were going on there. Right. And I don't think I knew who, like, understood Bruce Willis as a person that well either. Because the joke also hinges on their, like, the fact that he is also an A-lister of that caliber. But today we will be discussing one of the- None of those movies. None of those movies, but probably one of the early originators of the use of multiple characters as, like, a hinge of comedy in a movie. Instead of just- The other big- Recasting. The other big example would be, like, the performances of Peter Sellers. Right. But welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast committed to examining one of the least important issues facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation, we'll dig in and see what's there. And we're closing out 2020. We've almost made it to the end of the year with the hit 1988 romantic comedy, Coming to America, which was supposed to tie in to the release of the movie's long-delayed sequel, but then the sequel got delayed again until March. So three months from now, when that comes out on Amazon, just remember that we did this episode. The amount of egg on our face... From trying to plan anything this year in regards to the release schedule. Oh boy. So here's the thing. Obviously back in March of 2020, we put out a Quiet Place episode to tie into a Quiet Place Part 2. We couldn't know what was going to happen to the film industry. This time I got cocky because I saw that Coming to America, which has the same name but with the number 2, was coming out right before Christmas. And I took a gamble saying... Every comedy scheduled to be released this year has moved to streaming, so I bet it'll come out on streaming and will be good. And I was right that it did get moved from a theatrical release to a streaming one, but I did not predict that they would move when it came out on streaming. (laughs) I am surprised that they delayed the streaming release. I also don't know why, but I thought this was Netflix. I also thought that at one point, and then I realized that it was not. Yeah. But now it's Prime, You probably right? thought that because I probably told you that. Yeah, that sounds about right in terms of how I know movie things. But this is the one where, like, I thought I was being clever and gaming it out, and that's what I get for trying to be clever. Yeah, never try and be clever. Just be clever, Will. All right, well, that's our dating <laughs> advice for the episode. Until next time, <laughs> I'm a ginger. <laughs> I'm gay. Bye! All right, so we're talking about Coming to America, which is the reteaming of Eddie Murphy, who at this point is like one of the biggest stars in America, with the director John Landis. Landis had previously directed Murphy in Trading Places, which had been one of Murphy's early star-making performances, uh, back when he was on Saturday Night Live. I have not seen that. I'm trying to think of the last Eddie Murphy movie I watched was... I watched Dolomite during, like, April. So early quarantine. Yeah. I think I saw um, Bowfinger... From his, like, peak Eddie Murphy years. But I mostly knew him growing up as either Donkey or Daddy Daycare. Or Mushu from Mulan. Or Mushu from Mulan. Wow, Daddy Daycare is one I had forgotten about. Yeah, I mean, the joke is, what if 
a dad took care of not just his kid, but more than one kid. And the hijinks ensue. The elevator pitch is like, what if it was Mr. Mom, but there were three Mr. Moms and a lot more kids? What if somehow a man got into, hear me out, professional child care? How hilarious is that? I remember very little about that movie. Except that there was one kid who refused to take off a Flash costume. I remember nothing about that movie. Genuinely could not tell you what happened. I think there's camping, but I think that might be the sequel called Daddy Day Camp. Is that a movie? I don't know. According to Wikipedia, Daddy Day Camp is a movie. Eddie Murphy is not in it. It stars Cuba Gooding Jr. and is directed by Fred Savage. Yeah, I remember that now. That... Eddie Murphy could not be brought back for Daddy Daycare 2. But I think it's the same character. A a weird movie that I'm not going to watch. Oh, it has a 1% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Daddy Daycamp does. Oh boy. Based on 79 reviews, that ain't easy. The math doesn't really add up there, to be honest. Don't know how that works. Anyway, so coming to America, Eddie Murphy is like at the top of his star career. He was on Saturday Night Live from 1980 to 1984. And during that period, he starts doing these movies, Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop. Eddie Murphy is credited with the story of Coming to America, which is a little controversial. We'll get into it. And the screenplay was written by David Sheffield and Barry Blaustein, who had been SNL writers while Murphy was on the show. So they brought the movie to Paramount, which picked it up. And Eddie Murphy reached out to John Landis to direct it. You know what? We'll get into Landis in a second. First, I'm wondering what you thought of Coming to America. It was interesting. It was a lot sweeter than I thought. Yeah, it's very much a romantic comedy. It is. Like, I was expecting the main character, the prince, to be a lot meaner and, like, more haughty than he was. I thought it was interesting that they put all of those traits onto his friend. Yeah. Instead of having the prince himself be like, you expect me to work to make money to pay for things? But in a way, that's his whole deal is he's like like a Disney I want character. Like, yeah, uh, I live in this like gilded home and I want to see the world beyond. Right. And it was interesting because he at no point in the movie is like, I miss luxury. He's like all in on living in Queens. But I definitely really enjoyed some parts of this movie. It's a movie that felt to me like it's designed to be watched on TV. Yeah. Like there are a lot of good scenes and a lot of like funny character moments but as a movie it feels a little bit paint by numbers yeah it was kind of disjointed at times and there were just i didn't really understand some of it or like why it tied in but it had some very funny lines including the when they're talking about coming to america at the beginning and they point to the map and they're just like it's this huge land with infinite possibilities where should we go new york or los angeles (laughs) (laughs) that really got me i will say the thing that killed me every time was every version of the mcdowell's joke every shot of mcdowell's when he's reading the mcdonald's employee manual all of it that's when i lost it is when john amos was sitting there with the binder and hit it as soon as someone came in the room have you watched the mary tyler moore show it was kind of weird to see him it It was kind of weird to see him show up here i know john amos best from the west wing where he played the chairman of the joint chiefs and so to me he is the like sort of sturdy reliable 
advisor to Martin Sheen. And so seeing him here as just like a shameless grifter was excellent. Like the 1980s is kind of the last era where corporations were impotent enough that you could get away with something like McDowell's. Like you're clearly ripping off a big brand, but the internet doesn't exist and it's enough of a pain to track you down that you're probably going to get away with it as long as you don't start trouble. I kind of miss seeing stores like this in China. That was one of my favorite things is just driving around and seeing like Buck Stars and I'm trying to think Pizza Hat, I think was what I saw. Pizza Hat! <laughs> Um, that name really works with the restaurant shape. It does. There are like 40 different New Balance knockoffs in terms of variations of characters that kind of sound like New Balance in English. Just, you know what you're going to get from a place like McDowell's. And it's not sure. McDonald's, but boy, will it taste like it. It's McDowell's. Yeah, they have the golden arcs, the Big Mick. And their buns don't have sesame seeds, so it's clearly different. Right. Ugh. Love John Amos. This cast is entirely stacked with incredible performers. Oh, yeah. Because we've got Murphy in the lead. We've got Arsenio Hall as his best friend. Sherry Headley is Lisa. Mufasa and Sarabi as his parents. Yes, although that goes in the opposite direction. I know, it goes the other way. Which, I mean, I knew that at some point, but... Once Aeolian talked for the first time, I was just like, what? Oh, right. That is a thing that Disney did. And of course, James Earl Jones, by the time this movie is made, already has two Tonys, a Grammy, an Oscar nomination, and is Darth Vader. He has had such a career. My God. Yeah. He's great in this movie. He's like, so he good. has what you hire James Earl Jones for, which is just presence, but he also knows exactly where he fits into the comedy of it all. Right. He clearly has such good timing, like comedic timing, and I just love the rose petals. He interacts with the rose petals in the funniest way somehow. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he always is managing to be just where they are. The other thing that really threw me about this movie is the 80s were definitely the last time where you could get away with just like full on boobs in a movie like this. Yep. Just like very early on, you get four boobs right at the camera and some butt, a butt. And I mean, it is the sort of final era of that type of raunch com. And Landis had been directing National Lampoon movies at the end of the 70s. And you're still seeing some of that attitude. Because it's not even like the boobs are used for real comedy. They're just there. The closest thing to a good joke, which I did laugh at, is the joke from James Earl Jones about like, you know, son, we, we've never talked about sex, but I assume you're having sex with your bathers. Right. The sex jokes in this did not land as well for me. That one was entirely the James Earl Jones delivery. Yeah. I was very thrown off by the hand job at the basketball game. Not gonna lie. Oh, yeah, that was a weird one. That was just kind of weird. Really Where, threw uh, me for a loop. Patrice just has him like, hey, you should take off your jacket. And she like puts it in his lap. And that is clearly just giving him a hand job in like the fifth row at the garden. Right. Insane. So wait, I am curious what you meant by Eddie Murphy getting story credit is controversial. Okay. So Art Bookwald won a breach of contract lawsuit with Paramount claiming they'd stolen his idea for this movie. So he's... You know, a leading comedy writer of the days. And he had written a treatment called King for a Day that he sold to Paramount. It was about an African ruler who comes on a state visit to the U.S. And he's a jerk. He's obnoxious. While he's in the U.S. pissing everybody off, he gets deposed back in his home country. And so he's just like stuck in the U.S., but all of his money is cut off and stuff like that. And he winds up as a poor waiter 
who befriends and marries a kind black woman in DC, in part because they're in love and in part to avoid extradition. So Paramount optioned that movie. John Landis and Eddie Murphy were actually attached to it for a while. Paramount eventually put it in turnaround. Warner Brothers picked it up. Then in 1987, Eddie Murphy comes to Paramount and says, hey, I've got this idea for a movie. Pitch is coming to America. So they're clearly not the same movie, but there are similarities. And Art Buchwald sued Paramount. And basically, he was suing saying, I should get a cut of the box office. I should get a cut of the profits because I was not credited on this movie. And it's clearly partially inspired by my idea. Paramount's defense in court basically boiled down to coming to America didn't make any money, so there's nothing to pay you. The problem is that coming to America made $288 million worldwide. Yeah, I was about to say, I thought this movie did pretty well. Yeah, it was a hit. And the court responded that way. They were like, that's ridiculous. This movie made almost $300 million. And Paramount was like, well, no, see, you know, when you look at marketing and the theatrical rentals and stuff like that, it just doesn't work out. And the court was like, "Uh, no, you have to pay. And ultimately, Paramount decided just to pay the money rather than appeal when they lost. So they paid him not a small amount of money, but not a ton of money. And Paramount agreed not to appeal in part because they were worried that if they lost an appeal, it would mean the end of deceptive Hollywood accounting. I don't get how Hollywood wants all of their movies to appear to be failures. Because then they're all tax write-offs. Yeah. It's all business losses. It's like how, I mean, I was about to say, it's like how the Trump organization like never makes money. The difference is like they actually went bankrupt over and over again. Yeah, I don't think any of the studios are actually bankrupt. So, but that's what the studios do is they say like, oh, well, you know, like we put out Coming to America this year and we know it's the third highest grossing movie of 1988, but it still didn't make a profit. It's and part ridiculous. of it involves a lot of paperwork where, like, different parts of the company are paying each other. So then money's shuffling around. It's the kind of thing where, like, if there were ever a serious legal case looking into it, it would fall apart. I'm surprised there hasn't been. Yeah, this is the closest one, and it's the one where Paramount caved to avoid it happening further. Yeah. But, like, any movie you've ever heard of, pretty much, the odds are decent that it officially lost money. I wonder how much money all of the Star Wars movies lost Disney. I'm sure it was a ton. What a shame. Disney... I mean, I was about to make a joke that Disney's not doing well, and then I remembered they're actually really not doing well right now but with Disney the is literally park not shut doing down. Well because Disney is primarily a theme park company. Yeah. And people are not going to theme parks. For how dominant they are in media, it's crazy how much more the theme parks matter to them. Yeah, I mean, that's partially because... Like, in the 1980s, like, around this time period, Disney's film side was, like, doing terribly to the point that it looked like the studio might go out of business and they would just be a theme park company. Yeah. And at this point, the theme parks and, like, other stuff, like cruises and whatever, are still where they make most of their money. Because, you know, if you make a movie, you gotta make a whole movie every time, whereas... To make money off of a theme park, you just have to open it for the day and make a bunch of money. You don't have to create anything new. Well, you and, like, do, they do, but <laughs> you do different. also have to um, make sure the rides work. Yes, you have to pay a lot of people for safety inspections. One would hope. It's been a long time since there was a safety issue at that level at Disney. I'm sure there's been one since the person got eaten by an alligator, but that's the last one I remember. Someone got eaten by an alligator at Disney? That's not Disney. Yep. Well, I guess it is because of running the safety, but... The signs clearly said not to go in that water. Yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I was thinking. All right, now, the other thing we have to talk about is that, of course, the Art Buchwald lawsuit is the only lawsuit that directly relates to coming to America. But there is, of course, another famous lawsuit that is adjacent to it, and that's where John Landis comes back in, because we should probably acknowledge the Twilight Zone fiasco. Oh, is that... Was that John Landis? Yes. 
Oh, I thought it was his son for some reason. No, his son would have been a small child if he was even born at the time. His son is allegedly a terrible person in other ways. Okay, yes. Like, his son allegedly gaslit and manipulated his girlfriends. That's right. He is also a bad person. Right. John Landis was producing the 1980s Twilight Zone movie, which featured segments directed by him, Steven Spielberg, George Miller, and Joe Dante. And during the filming of the John Landis sequence, there was a... It's also not even a very good sequence. Don't watch the Twilight Zone movie. It's not good. There's a brief segment set in Vietnam at night during a bombing, and Landis violated child labor laws by having kids working after hours, and he violated safety protocols by having a helicopter flying too low, and the helicopter spun out of control and crashed, killing two children and the lead actor of the sequence. So Landis was charged with manslaughter, and he was acquitted, and then the families of the people who were killed sued him and the studio, who then settled out of court. And this was a massive scandal, obviously, because Landis was irresponsible and people died, and he also violated child labor laws. But Eddie Murphy, according to interviews Eddie Murphy did around the time, uh, he said that he had planned on directing the movie himself. Remember, it was him who came to Paramount with the story. And he offered it to Landis because he felt like Landis had given him his start with Trading Places and Landis's career was in the toilet because of, you know, the whole manslaughter thing. You know, Eddie Murphy, sometimes you don't need to rescue a friend's career when they have the killed is, children. They didn't even get along on this movie. Like, they fought the entire time. Landis thought Murphy was, like, too full of himself. He actually did, in an interview in 2005, John Landis is like, I think this is one of Eddie Murphy's best performances because he was a huge jerk to everybody on set, but he looks really nice and friendly in the movie. And then Eddie Murphy in interviews was like, John Landis was treating me like I was 22 and in my first movie, and I'm not. I can see how both of them are correct. Yeah. So that's where this fits in with the whole John Landis thing. Yeah. I've not heard that Eddie Murphy is easy to work with. No. But also John Landis killed children. Yes, he did. The other big Landis contribution that I was able to find, because I read this Collider interview with him from 2005, and he said that the part where Eddie Murphy plays Saul, the Jewish character at the barbershop. Oh, yikes. uh, Landis said it was his idea. Because he had gotten annoyed at an article about Jewish comedians in blackface. So he decided to put Eddie Murphy in makeup to look like a Jewish guy. You know. uh, That's all he really said in the interview. And then he's like, and that really freed up Eddie Murphy. And he was able to like be more charming and fun and stuff like that. And so he started doing it in more movies. Reading the interview, it's kind of implying that John Landis thinks blackface was no big deal. Yeah, I was about to say, um, one of them is much worse than the other. But you know, both can be bad. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where, like, even that, like, him made up to look like a Jewish man is worse than, like, on SNL, there was a very funny sketch where Eddie Murphy played an investigative journalist who went undercover as a white man. And that one's funny because the whole joke of that is that, like, white people are incredibly kind and, like, absurdly friendly to one another when there are only white people around. Like, a bank will give people tons of money for no reason or, like, every bus turns into a cocktail party if there are only white people on it. But, like, that's different than portraying stereotypes of a marginalized group. Right. Someone wrote something interesting about the new Ryan Murphy prom movie where James Corden (laughs) plays... (laughs) I read this. It's the Richard Lawson review at Vanity Fair. I have not read the full review, but they talk about how James Corden, by being straight, (laughs) basically made that character into, like, a hate crime. (laughs) 
because if you cast a gay actor to play a gay character with stereotypes, it is much more loving than when you have a straight person do it. Because then it is just going to be played from like a position of aren't gay people funny, not isn't it funny how gay people are perceived. Right. So I don't really understand why Eddie Murphy played this character or like why the character was there in the first place or really what was happening in that barber shop most of the time. It's the kind of thing that feels like, and I mean, it literally is, it is written by sketch comedy writers. Right. Like they came up with a couple of ideas along with Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall and like, here are some characters that we might have a good time playing around with. And that was sort of the end of it. But that then becomes Eddie Murphy's persona. Like, in this movie, Eddie Murphy plays a couple of characters, and it mostly works, but it becomes this path that he goes down, and sometimes it's good, and it's the nutty professor, and sometimes it's Norbit. Oh, God, Norbit. (laughs) But, like, that road starts here. Yeah, that... The road to... (laughs) The road to Norbit is paved with good intentions. Um, I also found the pastor to be very disconcerting that Arsenio Hall is playing. Arsenio Hall claimed that that pastor was mostly just his dad. It wasn't like the pastor was creepy or weird or anything. It was just where- he was weird. I mean, yeah, he was weird, but I mostly mean like where the pastor showed up to. Like he was just always there and always on. Like how he was the host of the black awareness rally that was a beauty pageant. I enjoyed that event in terms of the like the sheer weirdness that did feel like some civic group putting on an event and they're like, all right, well, like what three things can we put together to get enough people into the door? Like we're raising money for the children's home or whatever. Uh, we're going to have a beauty pageant. There will be a concert and the pastor will give a nice speech. Oh, yeah, because that's where sexual chocolate is, too. Right. I wonder who they could be referencing with that name. I feel like, I mean, besides, you know, the Jewish character, Eddie Murphy as the singer looks so different from normal Eddie Murphy. Like, they did a good job with that. The makeup effects are good. It's Rick Baker, who's, of course, a legendary great makeup artist. He got an Oscar nomination for this movie, lost to Beetlejuice, which is hard to argue with. But, yeah, I mean, it's done really, really well. I just found a lot of scenes to be kind of whiplash-inducing in this movie. But overall, I'm definitely glad I have now watched it. I mean, that's sort of the idea behind my whole thing that, like, this movie is best watched on television. Yes. Because I think it's the kind of thing that, when you're watching it in chunks, probably plays better. You get the big idea from each section, but then it has more of that sketch comedy structure. I mean, a lot of SNL movies have the same issue of just they don't know how to drop the sketch element. And I know this isn't based off of, like, SNL characters, but it just clearly has the vibes of sketch comedy writers. And sometimes it works, and sometimes you feel the sketch of it too much. Yeah. Nonetheless, it was a big hit, even though, actually, Coming to America, when it first screamed for critics, had a really negative press screening. So Paramount then canceled all other press screenings. Like, Siskel and Ebert were on an episode of the 1980s, like, Chicago Oprah Winfrey show. And Coming to America came up and they were like, we have not seen it. We keep trying to get Paramount to let us see it and they will not. Why did people hate it so much? Uh, You know, I think some of what we were talking about, they were like, it is a little shaggy. Its story is pretty simple. It feels lesser than the earlier Eddie Murphy comedies. But when it came out, it was a big hit. It was released on a Wednesday, June 29th, 1988. So sort of ahead of the 4th of July. 
came in first place that weekend with $21 million ahead of, and this is a great box office, Coming to America in number one, Who Framed Roger Rabbit in number two, Big in number three, Bull Durham in number four, and number five, Crocodile Dundee 2. Oh god, Crocodile Dundee. I had not... <laughs> have not thought about that in a while. I'll admit, that is a franchise I have never seen. I don't think I've seen anything. Maybe I have. I think Crocodile Dundee 2 is the one where they go to New York. Like, the first one is LA, and the second one is New York. And then the third one is maybe also New York. I think I may have seen it, the New York one, but I'm not sure. Huh. Weird. But like I said, um, the movie's well-received, makes $288 million worldwide, gets Oscar nominations for makeup, which it loses to Beetlejuice, and costuming, which it loses to Dangerous Liaisons. And it won the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Film. Eddie Murphy was nominated at the Image Awards, but lost to Denzel Washington in Cry Freedom. And Arsenio Hall won the Image Award for Supporting Actor, unopposed. Not that there were, like, other movies, like School Days came out this year and was nominated for Picture. They just, I guess, did not want to nominate Giancarlo Esposito. I guess, yeah. That's not I really mean, an Image Award character, though. Yeah, that's not, I was about to say, I think that uh, kind of makes sense. A lot of the supporting characters are being, especially the supporting actors, are being criticized. That's a good point. Although, speaking of supporting actors in school days, Sam Jackson kicks his way into this movie holding a shotgun, and I yelled, Sam! And it was great. He's just everywhere, isn't he? But it's the kind of thing where... No matter how early of a performance of his you see, you're just like, that's Sam Jackson. Oh, yeah. Indeed, that is Samuel L. Jackson. So I think we agree for the most part. This movie is is kind of shaggy, has its comic moments, and ultimately is a fairly standard romantic comedy. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's the most original story. But it's got some really good comedy performances in it and some things that, you know, maybe don't need to be there. I feel like so much of it could be cut, too. It's long. This is the, like... Judd Apatow, maybe your comedy could be shorter attitude. Yeah, it's a two-hour movie. This should have been a 90-minute movie. Yeah, easily. An hour 40 times. still have time to really appreciate the Coming to America song over the end credits. What a song. What was it like, oh, say can you see I'm coming to America? Yeah. I don't know this because I haven't watched it, but I assume that would also have been the theme song for the TV show. The TV show never got picked up, though, right? It never got picked up. They made the pilot, and then it was televised because in the late 80s, CBS over the summer would do something called CBS Summer Playhouse, which was a series, but it was just a series of them airing unsold pilots, which frankly is a great idea, and I would love that. I have been listening to a comedy podcast about Bonanza, where they go through, the joke is that they're going to do all 431 episodes of Bonanza, and they talk about it, and it has been confirmed, but it sounds like Bonanza was that CPS Summer Playhouse, where each episode is just like a pilot someone had written that they shoehorn into the wild, wild west. Excellent. Love it. What a, a economical use of your scripts that you have just in your trash can. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. Me too. I, I want to bring that back. Bonanza specifically? No, the CBS All one. All unsold pilots become westerns? Yeah. <laughs> Any unsold pilot, you have to rework into the Wild West and then make it make it good. Or not that good. You know I love westerns. I feel like I have enjoyed most westerns I've seen, but I don't think I've seen many of the, like, stereotypical westerns uh let me tell you my friend bonanza is streaming for free on the roku channel i will not be watching bonanza because i have learned from this show how racist it sounds well that is unsurprising when you say it yeah there is a recurring character 
who is described as a Chinaman. Well, that ain't great. Yeah. All right, well, I think we should talk about the romance of coming to America. Oh, yeah. So every week, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to guide our discussion and keep us on track. So, Will, what is point one of this week's movie? So, at the beginning of the movie, we have Eddie Murphy, who plays Prince Akeem of Zamunda, and it's his 21st birthday. And on his 21st birthday, he will meet and marry his queen. It's an arranged marriage situation. They've never met before, and also they're going to get married kind of before they've met. I guess they aren't really supposed to have talked yet. Am I not all you dreamed I would be? Oh, you're fine. Beautiful. It's just that if we're going to be married, I thought we should talk to each other, get to know each other. Ever since I was born, I've been trained to serve you. Yes, I know this, but I would like to know about you. What do you like to do? Yeah, that's not the actual marriage ceremony, though, is it? Aren't they just presenting her to him? I'm pretty sure they are also supposed to be married there. Because it is framed as, like, fine, you can delay your marriage 40 days and not get married right now. And also, like, when Akeem pulls her into the side room, his framing is, I want to get to know you before I marry you. Yeah, the difference between her dress at that wedding and her dress at the next wedding, though, is just... Very stark. Okay, yeah, obviously, Mark, you and I are wedding dress connoisseurs. We've become experts doing this show. So if we're going to go with the first meeting is going to be a wedding, that dress, A+. Stunning. It's, like, made out of different pieces of gold pieced together, and, like, you can see her stomach through it. She's got this massive, like, updo that her hair is huge everywhere. That's very cool. It's great look. Wedding dress at the end of the movie pink monstrosity it is horrible zamunda loves a pastel they love a pastel and boy is that pastel pink dress awful a strapless pink thing in the front that's not terrible but there is like a mile of train behind it that's like layers train it's like pleated it's a pleated pink train and she has this like you know like at some swimming pools, how they had, like, the mushroom thing that water came down from? Yeah, that is what Her it looks like. Is like that. That is what it looks like. Everything is so... It, she looks like a wedding cake. Who needs a wedding cake when you have that dress there? And that Taking is wedding dress watch. To a new level. Yeah, this is our <laughs> wedding dress watch. Um, okay. So, yeah, so Akeem is supposed to get married... But he wants to marry for love, which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's also interesting because he's like, it almost sounds like he wants to marry for love, but he also just wants to marry a woman that has a brain, which seems to be like a wild concept in Zamunda. Right, where when he's talking to this woman who he's supposed to marry, he keeps saying like, what's your favorite music? And she's like, I like whatever you like. What's your favorite food? I like whatever you like. And he's like, I want someone to speak to me. Which is interesting because Aeolian is definitely not that person. So would that character evolve out of being so accommodating? Did Aeolian start that way? Who is James Earl Jones' wife? Because she is fairly outspoken, the current queen. So I found that interesting. But Akeem refuses to marry her. He wants to marry someone for love. And he convinces his father, the king, to give him 40 days to travel the world. And Akeem keeps being like, I want to go find someone that I'm in love with. And his dad's just like, oh, I get it. You want to, like, have sex with a bunch of people, then come back and marry this woman. That's totally fine. And Akeem eventually is like, yeah, sure, whatever. I believe it. So he and his friend decide to go to... His friend, Semi, Semi, played by former Celebrity Apprentice winner Arsenio Hall. 
decide to go where the smart women are. So they decide to come to the U.S. and go to New York. And they're like, where in New York shall we find the perfect wife for the you future king? Ah, we will go to Queens. I liked that. I gotta say. I liked it. It's, it is the build up to it and then just a magnifying glass over Queens. Great. So they go to America, or from our perspective, they are coming to America. Hey, that's the name of the movie. Point two. They come to America. They have a hard time. Akeem keeps insisting that he wants to live like an average Joe, so like he won't stay in the country's penthouse at the Waldorf. And he insists on finding like a terrible apartment. I do love that people in the neighborhood steal all their trunks, and the next morning when they come out, just seeing everybody wandering around in these ornate robes. I loved it. And the guy that comes up to him and opens his trench coat and tries to sell him back the gold-plated toothbrushes and other toiletries. Yeah, the gold hairdryer. I got this great hairdryer. But Akeem's like, great, they can have all of it. I don't care. We're just regular guys. We're students at the University of the United States. So they start looking for a job and they wind up at McDowell's, which is the knockoff McDonald's. Run by John Amos. At one point, John Amos has to chase a photographer away because he's worried the guy might work for McDonald's. I have recently been placed in charge of garbage. Do you have any that requires disposal? No, it's totally empty. Well, when it fills up, don't be afraid to call me. I'll come take it out most urgently. That's good to know. When you think of garbage, think of Akeem. Well, they show up at McDowell's because... They first go out to the bars, and they meet a bunch of women who none of them they like. So then the taxi driver, or no, one of the barbershop customers tells them that they have to go to a nice place, like a black awareness meeting to meet nice girls. And they go, and then Lisa gives a speech, and already Akeem falls in love with her. So they go then to McDowell's to try and find Lisa. Right, he immediately falls in love with her, among other things, puts like... I don't know, $1,000 in the collection plate? Yeah, he drops a lot of cash in this movie. Well, that's how they run out of all their money, and Semi has to write to the king. Yeah, Zamunda must have a lot of money. I think it's also entirely possible that Zamunda does not have an equitable distribution of its money. Yeah, I know, but even still, just the amount that they are dropping at that time, there has to be some sort of oil, at least, that the royal family is in control of. Seems likely. So they get jobs as janitors at McDowell's. And this kind of takes us to point number two, I guess. Yeah. So Akeem is making moves on Lisa in a very awkward way at first. Right. At one point, he comes in and offers to take out her empty garbage. And she's like, it is empty. And he says, well, when you think of garbage, think of Akeem. I liked that. But then we find out that Lisa is dating someone already named Daryl. So Daryl owns like a hair care company One product he definitely sells, he talks about how their home weave products have been selling really well, and that can't be a thing that works well. I feel like some really skilled people out there can probably do it themselves. But I don't think Daryl is the person that I want marketing that, though. No. Well, Daryl, doesn't Daryl's dad own the company and Daryl just lazes his way about because that's one of the main things is daryl is lazy and akeem is hard working so daryl clearly is taking advantage of lisa and doesn't respect her but lisa's dad cleo mcdowell loves daryl because he is rich let me tell you i never learned his name he was just john amos in my notes yeah his name was cleo mcdowell yeah so he's a guy who like clearly his goal is he doesn't want his children 
to have to struggle the way that he did. But the way that it manifests is he's just like incredibly excited at any possibility for one of his daughters to marry Rich. And that's like his driving objective. It is. But at the end, he does have a redeeming moment. But at this point, he is very much just a man trying to marry his daughter to a rich man. And Akeem keeps thinking that he's getting in with John Amos. He's trying to cozy up to him because Eddie Murphy, the barber, told Akeem that like, oh, the way to a girl is through her father. So Akeem has been doing extra work around. He at one point thinks he's being invited to like a dinner party and then discovers that he is actually going to be the valet and handing out drinks. That's a little bit later. But that's the kind of thing where John Amos clearly just like looks down on him as a menial worker. Right. But Lisa is being his friend because she and her sister Patrice invite them to go to a basketball game with them where Patrice gives him the hand job. And so they are talking This is also more. where the guy recognizes him. So I'm like, oh yeah. Zamundin expat works as a vendor at the basketball stadium and like chases Akeem through it trying to get a picture with him. Right. And the whole time Akeem is keeping his identity secret from everyone. I like when he sends Lisa the earrings and includes the note from a secret admirer, not Daryl. <laughs> That's such a good way of phrasing it. Because <laughs> you have to make sure that she doesn't know, doesn't think it's Daryl. Right. So you got to make it clear. He also probably gets some points. This is around the time that he takes out Sam Jackson, right? Yeah, because it's before. Th- yeah, because so this is what gets him the invite to the party. In quotes, Sam Jackson bursts in with a shotgun and Akeem and Semi work together to take down Sam Jackson. Which is a nice moment of they set it up earlier in the movie by showing their workout sequence in which it's definitely the two of them doing all the flips around that training room. (laughs) Oh, of course. So they take him out and then this gets them using a mop invited to Cleo McDowell's party where they are valet and bartender. But this brings right, us to point three. They think that defending three. the store has like gotten them in with the family. Oh, right. Which is a fair assumption as a family right. business. But this brings us to point three. Now, as you all know, Daryl and Lisa have been going together for quite some time. But I'm pleased to announce that just a few moments ago, Daryl here popped the big question. And Lisa happily accepted. So... Akeem's whole goal is get close to John Amos. That'll get him close to Lisa. Daryl's goal appears to be, like, I don't know, the secret. And if you want it hard enough, it'll just happen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) By the way, I watched the fictional film adaptation of The Secret that came out in 2020, starring uh, Josh Lucas and Katie Holmes. And uh, it's bad. And I just wanted to note that. I just can't. It doesn't have a story. Like, it can't be real. I don't believe it's real. So it is a real movie. It's about... Too long, I believe, is the runtime. And yeah, Katie Holmes plays a person who was basically poor because she didn't want to be rich hard enough. Her husband had been an inventor who like was killed in a horrible plane crash, but not before he and Josh Lucas like did and I it's very dumb. Anyway, she winds up rich at the end and, and kisses Josh Lucas. Good for them. So at um, this So anyway, point three Daryl. At this party, Daryl just announces that they're engaged without asking Lisa. I was, what? 
This is right after he told Akeem that all women secretly want men to take charge and tell them what to do. And then he just walks over to John Amos, whispers something, and then John Amos is like, this is now an engagement party. It was wild. Wild. And he's shocked that Lisa is upset. Yeah, when she gets mad, he's like, why do you want to be mad at our party? (laughs) Oh my god, I hated him so much. This is our engagement party, how could you be upset? She's like, I thought my dad was just handing out booze. Oh god. So she goes out to, like, get away from the party, and then Akeem goes out, and they sit on swings and commiserate about arranged marriages. Is this where he tells her that he's a goat herder? Yes. So he- That might be later. Yeah, so now he is lying, (laughs) more directly, but- This is where they're starting to build a relationship where she actually seems to like him instead of just kind of like being his friend. Yeah, so this is point number four, which is the flirtationship and dating for Lisa and Akeem. Someone to kiss. What about Patrice? I am not interested in Patrice. What about Daryl? I am not interested in Daryl either. Like at one point, Akeem invites her over to his place for dinner, but Semi, having gotten fed up with living in squalor, has spent their money just tricking out this terrible apartment. Got a hot tub in it, all the hippest 80s design. There's like a glowing white statue of the Empire State Building. It's a lot. So, Akeem can't bring her in there because then she'll know he's rich. So, they go out, they wind up walking in a park in Brooklyn for some reason, and they get dessert, and... They do this thing that happens in movies that's very weird, which is they dance in a restaurant that is clearly not a dancing restaurant. Yeah, I hate it. <laughs> it makes it's me s- always weird. It's always weird to watch. But you know, they have their One sweet day, dancing I moment. Like, I want to be like sitting in an Applebee's and see some people be like, "You want to dance?" and just do it. I would be so down. But he gets really happy, and then he walks home singing, and people continuously tell him to shut the. F- up because it is queens <laughs> i do like the singing that's a lot of fun especially because it is so loud i honestly find every joke of people in new york yelling out their windows and happiness and someone responding just you funny every time have you watched the 40 year old version on netflix no i haven't it's really good and there's a running bit of the main character, who is also the writer-director, Rada Blanc, getting into arguments with the uh, homeless guy across the street, who is always like, when are you gonna get a date? And it has similar energy. I just love all of the jokes about New York being terrible, expressed only through people yelling at each other to just shut up. One day, we'll go back there. Someday. I now have access to a car here, so, you know, I don't have to take the bus if ever I can afford parking, so the I will be taking the bus. The bus is part of the charm. Uh, I hate it so much. Getting stuck on the side of the road in New Jersey is part of the charm. It's so much easier from the suburbs, honestly. Like, leaving on the Vamoose from Bethesda was always so much faster than taking it from Union Station. Yeah. Rip. Anyway, don't get on a bus right now. And Akeem and Lisa continue to go on dates at one point. They go on a date to an art gallery and they see a Zamundin art exhibit and he has to like seize her and aggressively kiss her to stop her noticing a picture of him on the wall. It's kind of weird to have the current royal family of a country. Unless they like loaned the exhibit. Yeah. Oh yeah. That I was didn't my think about that. Like all the artwork was on loan from the royal family. Yeah. In their weird neoclassical palace. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's such a weird design. I mean, obviously it's mostly a matte painting, but it's very weird. But at this time... 
Akeem has now given away all of Semi's money to homeless people because he's mad at him. And so Semi sends a wire to ask the king and queen for more money. And then they just show up to make sure everything's okay. So while Akeem and Lisa are on the art gallery date, King James Earl Jones and his retinue are trying to track him down to stop this foolishness and return him to Zamunda. There is a great sequence, again, I love John Amos in this movie, where he keeps waiting for first Akeem to show up, and he's really excited because, of course, he's desperate to have his daughters marry into wealth when he learns that Akeem is a prince. So he's waiting for Akeem to show up, he's waiting for James Earl Jones to show up, and Daryl keeps knocking at the door trying to get Lisa to take him back, and John Amos just getting increasingly furious with this dude that he had been all in with, like, a week earlier is great. I loved the point where he was like, He's rich. He's got money. He doesn't just have money. He's got money. It shows a picture of (laughs) Prince Akeem on a 100 Zamundan pound note. It's great. Anyway, Lisa gets mad, ultimately, because her dad tells her that Akeem is a prince. And she's like, well, this dude lied to me, and that is upsetting. He is not a goat herder. And then King James Earl Jones goes to her and is like, yo, Akeem doesn't love you. He just came here to bang a bunch of American women, which is... Explicitly not what Akeem said when he left, but James Earl Jones didn't really listen to him. No, because he's king. He doesn't have to listen. So then she runs out into the rain in a very impractical coat, because it seems to be made out of, like, fleece. But Akeem shows up at this point, I think. No, because first, the king, King James Earl Jones, tries to pay off Cleo to get him to, like, convince his daughter to leave Akeem and this is where he has his redeeming moment because as soon as he tries to pay him off that's when Cleo's like family's actually more important than money I'm mad at you now meanwhile Akeem then chases Lisa down in the subway begs her to be with him offers to give up anything he shouts out a renunciation of his throne on the subway which apparently is as legally binding as Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy yeah it seems to be so she says no and goodbye everyone's gonna head back to Zamunda And that's when the queen is talking to James Earl Jones, and she's like, why are you so terrible? (laughs) And then basically, we cut to point five. Point five, it's now the wedding. Would you really have given up all of this just for me? Of course. If you like, we can give it all up now. Nah. It's heavily implied that Akeem is now here, sadly marrying the lady with the gold dress from the beginning, only now she is wearing this pink pleated trained cake dress i loved this cut because when she gets up to the front and he pulls the veil back hooray it's lisa and they kiss and i was like this so succinctly cut out so much stuff that you would get in other movies of like lisa having a talk with izzy and then they changed the dress and stuff it was just like nope we all knew what was gonna happen we all knew how it would happen they just cut straight to the happy ending and it's say yeah, the i movie mean needs more of that energy i know it was like the only economical move the movie made but i really appreciated it yeah that's the end of the movie. They're married, and we'll find out what happened to them whenever Coming to America actually comes out. Right. So, after watching all of this, do you find the romances believable? Um, I mean, not really. Yeah. Again, For starters, it's... we've got the, the usual compressed time frame issue. Yeah, that's the problem. Because the movie takes place in less than 40 days, because the deal is he'll be gone for 40 days, and they run out of money with some substantial amount of time left. Right. So, it's maybe like a three-week movie. Yeah, it's just way too fast for her to marry him. For her to marry the janitor from McDowell's? Yeah, it's wild. 
Um, her sister gave him a hand job very noticeably at a basketball game while she was sitting next to him. Yeah, but to be fair, when they were dancing at that jukebox at which they should not have been dancing, when he kisses her, or maybe before that, she's like, what about Patrice? And he says, I don't care about Patrice. And he says, what about Daryl? She says, I don't care about Daryl. And then they start making out. So they do acknowledge the whole Patrice situation. Very quickly. And then later, Patrice hooks up with Arsenio because to explain why the apartment is tricked out, he says, oh, I'm the king of Zamunda, and Akeem is my servant. Which also helps him cover for Akeem, in a way. Right. So anyway, every week we rate the believability of a movie's romance on a 10-point scale, where 0 means we believe none of it, and 10 means we believe all of it. Where would you put Coming to America? Well, I mean, he is the first nice person to Lisa that we see. So I'm going to give it like a 3 or a 4. I was also thinking a three or a four, so I guess I'll just say a three and a half. What the heck? Yeah, I was going to say split the difference, 3.5. Do you think that Akeem or Lisa is dateable? I guess so. Yeah. Right? Lisa is, for sure. Yeah, and I I think Akeem also, like, very much wants to be dateable and not in an annoying way. Yeah, I guess. I just don't know if I could handle the royalty aspect. Oh, yeah, I don't want that. He is much more dateable than I would have expected when I started the movie. Right, you expect his character to be the jerk character from the Art Bookwald script. Right. So, sure. Do you think that they'll stay together? Probably. I mean, it would be a mess for them to not stay together because of the whole royalty thing. Very true. But it also seems like they are pretty well suited to one another. Yeah. If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? Obviously the queen. Yeah, I mean, there's no other option. She's by far the best person in the movie. Yeah, she is understanding, compassionate. Like, you even get that sense at the beginning when they're having the breakfast, and she's like, oh, yeah, like, Akeem, come on down, sit with us, talk with us. Right. There was no other choice. There was no other choice. So, when we started this podcast, we did not expect this to be the case, but so many of the movies we have covered have been adapted to Broadway musicals, Do you think that this should get a stage adaptation? Should? I don't know. It certainly could. Yeah, you could easily make this into a musical. Again, the story is simple enough. Like, you could kind of see it working. Yeah. Worse movies have been adapted into musicals. That is very true. I don't think it's necessary, but I think you could do it. Yeah, I think it could be done well, even. Yeah. Right. I think that's about it for Coming to America. Watch your computers for Coming to America this March. Now, speaking of movies with part of them set in Africa, next Oof. week we are fulfilling a promise from this fall. That was quite a segue, Will. We are going to be watching the 1990s Michael Crichton adaptation in Congo. God, I'm dreading this and I'm so excited all at the same time. Is there any romance? I don't know. We'll find out. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. All right. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Coming to America? I am having a hard time with this. I keep looking at my at my notebook and seeing stuff like dancing by the jukebox. And I'm like, well, you shouldn't do that. It's weird to dance in a restaurant that doesn't have dance space. I guess do what you can to make the other person's life better. Because when you think of trash, think of Akeem. That is good. Yeah. And I think that's about it. So there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.